Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, The Sin Nature. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. Today I want to share with you about the sin nature that we have. And more specifically, what we'll be dealing with in the, the major part of this will be dealing with when we are born in the natural birth as a child, are we born with a sin nature or are we born alive unto God? Now this has a lot of applications, many more applications than what we will be able to deal with in this lesson. This will simply be a teaching on this subject and uh, you will need to make your own applications. But this has a tremendous bearing on redemption and it will explain many times why God has dealt with mankind the way that he has. It will explain many, many things that uh, I believe are basics in understanding the plan of redemption, why God dealt with us the way he has, why we have to approach God the way we do, and on and on and on it goes. And so I think that this is something that really needs to be understood, and so that is the purpose of making this tape, is to deal with the subject of are we born into this life, this natural life, with a sin nature, or are we born without a sin nature, and we do not actually die spiritually until we commit sin. That needs to be dealt with. Now, first of all, I'd like to just state what the two major opinions have been on this. The traditional view of the church since way back in church history, I mean going back thousands of years, has been that man is born with a sin nature, and that we are born into this world that way, that we have what is termed by many people, such as the Catholics have a doctrine that they call original sin. And this is the reason that they believe in infant baptism. And they baptize infants uh, just a few days old, and that's to cleanse them or to separate them from the sin, the original sin that they came into this world with. Now, that's their reasoning behind it. That is totally unscriptural. There is no such thing in the Word of God as infant baptism, and there is no reason to do that. But the reason that they... Uh, came up with that was because of this doctrine, this belief that we are born into this world with a sin nature. Now, as I said, that's the traditional view that's been held all of these years that I'm aware of. And then within just the last few years that I've been aware of, there is a totally brand new way of looking at this, and many people have said that a child is not born into this life with a sin nature, that their sin is alive unto God, that it is not dead, that it is not separated from God, but that they have a, uh, a spirit within them that is cleansed, that it's holy, that it's not stained by sin, it uh, doesn't have any effects of sin upon it. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. And one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that I've seen behind the people that I've heard espouse that belief is their attempt, mainly in children's ministries, they are trying to say that children are not just incapable of receiving from God. They are not dead unto God. That they are sensitive. That they will respond to the things of God. That you can share with a child the things of God and a child will accept and receive them many times much more readily than an adult will. And by observation, we can see that that's true. Children many times are much more receptive than an adult. And so, people have decided from that that there must be a period of time until a child really becomes accountable for their actions when they are in a sinless state. Well, now, also by observation, you can see that that's not exactly true because a child definitely has a tendency to go wrong, even from his mother's womb. And that's what it says out of Isaiah chapter 53. So these are basically the two extremes. What we're going to be presenting on here is, are things from the Word of God, and I believe that the actual answer is kind of in between these two. And uh, I'll just real simply state what I'm saying, and then we will spend the rest of this time explaining it. I believe that when a child is born into this world, he is born with a sin nature. But that sin nature is not imputed unto him or held against him. God doesn't deal with him as being separated until the knowledge or the age of accountability, wherever he becomes truly accountable for his actions, then that sin revives and it begins to start working death in him. But there is a period of time in a child's life where they walk free from that sin nature, although it is there. 
Now, I believe that this will harmonize both views. There are scriptures on both sides of this question, and uh, if you will look at it the way that we just presented it, you'll be able to use those scriptures and, and uh, on both sides to verify that middle position. Now, first of all, let's look in Romans chapter 5. Now, this is one of the most uh, graphic uh, passages of scriptures dealing with this. Now, there are others... But this passage of Scripture deals with it probably as complete as any that I know of. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now this is talking about, through Adam is that one man that he's speaking of, that through Adam sin entered into the world. Now, it didn't say that it comes through every individual man, but through Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, is that talking about their individual sins? Well, it is true that all individuals have sinned individually. That's true. But if you'll keep reading this in context and go on down through this uh, chapter, you'll find that he's talking about that it's the sin nature that was passed on to us that made us a sinner. The individual sins that a person commits are simply an expression of the sin nature that they have. Now, that is true up until the time of conversion. When we get born again, we no longer have a sin nature. The reason we sometimes sin after we're born again is because our old sin nature that was there previous to salvation taught us how to lust, taught us how to walk in the uh, attitudes of the flesh, and taught us how to respond to Satan. And our body and our soul will continue to respond to those things because simply that's the way that we were taught and educated until we renew our mind. Once a person is born again, there is nothing that makes them sin. It is gone. It is passed away. It no longer exists. But they will continue to sin until they begin to renew their mind and change their thinking. Your body will operate on the knowledge that it's been fed. And if all the knowledge you've been fed is wrong, even though you get changed on the inside, outside you're going to still act on the knowledge that you have. So that's the reason that you have to renew your mind. That's the reason that the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, Verse 2, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing your mind, changing your thinking, and ordering it according to the word will transform you. You no longer have a nature that makes you live in sin. The reason Christians live in sin and in disobedience is simply because they have not renewed their mind. As it says over in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, all things that pertain unto life and godliness are given unto us through the knowledge of him. And it's, we've got to receive the knowledge of him. A lack of knowledge will make us perish, as the Word of God says. Now, to further verify that Romans chapter 5, when it says in verse 12, that sin entered into the world and that this came through Adam, if you'll just keep reading on down, like, for instance, in verse 15, it says, in, in part of that verse, we'll go back and read all of this later, it says, For if through the offense of one, speaking through what Adam did, many be dead... And right there it shows that it was Adam's transgression that brought death upon us. Not your individual transgressions, but rather Adam's transgression is the one that brought death upon us. In verse 16, it says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Now it says here that through Adam... Judgment came upon all of us to condemnation, not necessarily for what we did, but for what Adam did. And that's the whole point of what verse 16 is saying. In verse 17 it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. That's talking again about what Adam did. Through what he did, death reigned upon the entire human race. In verse 18 it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. There again, it says, through Adam's offense, judgment came upon all of us to condemnation. In verse 19, it says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Where, how did you become a sinner? Most people think, well, it's because of the things I've done. No, it was through Adam's sin that you became a sinner. You were born with a sin nature. Now, that's what all of this chapter right here, all of those verses are saying that clearly. What? One other passage of Scripture I'd like to bring into this is Psalms chapter 51. 
and in verse 5. This is where David was speaking. This is after Nathan the prophet had come and rebuked David for going into Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, and he had murdered Uriah, and uh, the prophet had come and rebuked him for this, and David was repenting before God. And in verse 5 he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some people I've heard say, well, that means, brother, that wasn't talking about that he was born with a sin nature, but rather that he was conceived in sin. Well, it is not sin to have children. The physical relationship in marriage is not sin. And I don't think, think that that's talking about the fact that his mother was just such a sinner. I believe that in context, and if you will compare this with Romans chapter 5, that this is talking about that he was shapen in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him. In other words, that sin nature was present in his parents, and it was passed on unto him. And that's exactly what Romans chapter 5 was saying. Now let's go back and look at some of these verses. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, this is very important right here, and I believe that this is the bridge in the gap between what we just stated, the fact that all of us received a sinful nature through the transgression that Adam had. This is the bridge between that and the uh, understanding of how can a child, like for instance, let's ask this question, if a child was to die before they were converted and born again, before they came to an acknowledging of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if they have this sin nature, then a child must go to hell. That would be the reasoning behind that. Well, it, again, even though the church has always said that a child is born with a sin nature, it again has been the traditional view of, a ch of, a, of the church that the child would not go to hell if he was born, if he died before he really became accountable for his sins. How do you reconcile that? It seems like the logical thinking would be that that would be so, that his sins, you know, would hold him back. Well, this scripture right here is the bridge between all of that. It says, until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, before the law, and what it's talking about here is before a child really becomes accountable, knows what they're doing, then their sins are not imputed unto them. Now, we'll explain that just a little bit uh, later on. In verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, verse 13 just said that sin is not imputed. And the word impute, if you will look this up, the word impute does not mean to take what you do and hold it against you, but the word impute means to take what someone else has done and lay to your account. Now, if you'll look it up in the dictionary, that is literally what the word impute means. And you can see that right here in context because... In context, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about how that through what Jesus did, righteousness has come upon all of us. For instance, if you'll go down into verse 17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, in other words, sin was imputed unto people through what Adam did, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, his righteousness was imputed unto us. In verse 18, it says, Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, we know that we have become righteous through what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that. Ephesians 4.24, and on and on the Scriptures go. Now, this is not our righteousness that's being laid to our account. No, this is the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed unto us. And you can read that in Romans chapter 4 where it talks about that righteousness was imputed unto Abraham. And on and on it goes. The word impute means to take what somebody else has done and lay to our account. Now, we can see that very clearly when it comes to righteousness because we know that all of our righteousness, our righteousness, is like filthy rags. We had to have God's righteousness given to us to make us righteous in His eyes. We, God took what Jesus did and laid it to our account. He imputed righteousness to us. Well, that's what the word impute means. In verse 13 where it says, Sin is not imputed when there is no law, that is talking about 
mind that what Adam did, that sin nature, was not imputed unto us, or it was not laid to our account, it was not held against us until there was law in the earth. And that's talking about until the time that Moses came along and introduced the uh, old covenant law, the ordinances, the thou shalt nots, and all of the judgments and the ordinances that were recorded in the Old Testament. So until that time, there was sin in the world. That's what it says. Sin was in the world. In other words, the sin nature was there, but that sin nature was not being held against us. God was not dealing with us as uh, a person that had a sin nature. Now, a scripture that will go along with this is Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 1. I'd like to read that to you. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the terminology being dead here, it's definitely not talking about your physical body. Before you got born again, your physical body wasn't dead, and it's not talking about your soulish man being dead. This is talking about a spiritual death. You remember the Bible says, uh, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord was speaking to Adam and Eve, and he said, In the day that you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. They didn't die physically. They didn't die in their soulish realm, but in their spirit man, they died. Now, that does not mean cease to exist. Death never means cease to exist in Bible terminology. Now, you need to get this because it's been uh, understood that way. There is a connotation as associated with the word death, and many people uh, think that death means that somebody ceases to exist. Like, for instance, when a person dies, they're no longer with us. They talk about them in the past tense. A person doesn't cease to exist. All death is, is separation. It's the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. A person who is made in the image of God never ceases to exist. They will live forever in one of two places. There is no exception to that. Nobody ceases to exist. No created being that has a spirit on the inside of them ha ceases to exist. It simply means separation. That's what physical death is. Well, when Adam died spiritually, his spirit didn't cease to exist. He had a spirit, and that spirit was active, but it simply lost its connection with God. It severed. There was a separation. And now... The spirit that was on the inside of man was functioning independent of God. And for a long period of time, that spirit still, still retained some of the knowledge that it had when God was flowing through that spirit. When that spirit was in communion with God, it still retained a lot of that knowledge, but it began to be corrupted. It began to be perverted, and, and our spirit began to lead us in uh, the wrong direction. And that's the reason that the new birth came, and the reason you have to be born again instead of just changing your thinking, the reason you have to be born again is because that day spirit, that spirit that has been separated from God, that became contaminated, that was defiled, that was dead in trespasses and sins, according to this scripture in Ephesians 2, 1, that spirit had to be replaced. Because John chapter 4, verse 24, says that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The problem was, how could a dead spirit or a spirit that was separated from God enter back into fellowship with God? It simply couldn't. It had to be born again. It had to be recreated. It had to take the old dead spirit away and give us a brand new spirit. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5:17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. That's not talking about your physical body, and that's not talking about your soul. If your physical body was fat before it got saved, it'll still be fat after it gets saved. If, you, if your soulish mind was not too smart before it got saved, it won't be too smart after it gets saved. Now, those two things are subject to change. You can change your weight, you can change your mind, you can renew it, but that is not the part of you that old things passed away, all things became new. That's talking about your inner person, your spirit man. You received a new spirit, and according to Romans 8 9, it was the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Galatians chapter 4, it was the spirit of His Son that He sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And now we are able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth because our spirit has become one with his spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17. So our spirit man was dead. Adam's spirit was separated from God. 
And let's continue to read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. It was our nature... Now, if you will look up the word nature and get hold of what it means, it means that this is the way you were born. This is your nature. You were born with a sin nature. The sins that you committed were not the real problem. It was the sin nature that enticed you and led you to commit the sins that you committed. So the sin nature was always the problem. Now, back to Romans chapter 5, it says that until the law, sin was in the world. The sin nature was passed on from Adam to Cain and to Abel and from them on to their children and on and on it goes. The sin nature was passed on, but God wasn't holding this sin against them. In other words, their spirit was dead, but God, instead of just withdrawing from man because they were too sinful, God, there was a period of time that God didn't hold that sin nature against them. He was not imputing that sin unto them. God was dealing with mankind in mercy and in grace and forgiveness during a certain period of time. Now, there's a long discussion we could get into on this that I simply haven't got time to deal with. I've got other tapes that will cover this, such as God's attitude towards sin and many other tapes that we have on this subject. But during this period of time, God was not wanting to impute people's sins unto them. Somebody might say, then why was the law given? If Why did God ever give a law where he started holding man's sins against them, our sin nature against them? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, it says that came because of transgressions. You see, sin was still there. The sin nature was still there. Man was still sinning. It, just because God wasn't holding them against them didn't keep man from sinning. Man was sinning. Now, God's wrath and judgment wasn't coming upon them because of their sin. But that sin, see, had a twofold effect. Not only was it an offense against God that deserved wrath and judgment, but sin also made us a slave to the devil. There was a vertical relationship, and there was also a horizontal relationship that sin put us into. Now, God wasn't imposing that vertical relationship, his wrath and judgment upon sin for a certain period of time, but nonetheless, Satan was still taking advantage of people because of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So that, even though that scripture wasn't written, written back in the very uh, beginning of, of time, it was still in effect. The word of God was forever settled before it was ever written down in pen and ink, and that principle was there. And although God wasn't judging sin, man was still having sin destroy them because Satan was taking advantage of it. Now, that's what the 14th verse of Romans chapter 5 is saying. Yeah, a person could look at verse 13 and say, well, if sin wasn't being imputed unto us, if it wasn't being held against us, then that means why did people die? Because the wages of sin was death. It looked to me like God was imputing sin unto him. Well, the 14th verse explains this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. See, verse 14 is dealing with that. It says, look, death was still reigning. Why? Because sin was, being, uh, was putting us in bondage to the devil. In Hebrews chapter 2, and the scripture there says that Jesus came and destroyed him that had the power of death. And it's speaking of the devil. In other words, Satan was the one that was taking advantage of sin and death was multiplying in the earth because of what Satan was doing, how Satan was taking advantage of sin. God did not desire to hold man's sins against them. But because of his leniency towards it, man was just continuing in sin and sin was growing and multiplying and Satan was taking more and more advantage of them and they were blind to how dead sin was. So there came a certain period of time where God did introduce the law and tell man how deadly sin was. But with that knowledge of sin, you remember God never wanted man to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's deadly. And with that knowledge of sin, man not, may not have sinned as much, but the sin they had committed completely separated them from God. Sin became alive. All of a sudden, boy, I mean, there was a big rift towards God because now man knew how ungodly he was. He knew how separated he was. And mercy and forgiveness, faith in the Lord Jesus had not been totally revealed yet 
And I tell you what, there were some miserable people under the Old Covenant if they didn't really, through faith, foresee the promise of the Messiah coming because all they saw was their separation. All they saw was their old sins. So there was a period of time where God didn't want to impute sin or lay what Adam had done, that sin nature, to their account. And God was dealing with those people in mercy and forgiveness. Now let me take a scripture out of Romans chapter 7. Now this is the flip side of the coin. And this is a passage of scripture that many people today would teach to say that a child is not born with a sin nature. It says in Romans chapter 7 verse 9, Paul is speaking and he says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now this right here, uh, the terminology being alive is exactly the opposite terminology of what Ephesians chapter 2 says about that we were dead in trespasses and sin. Again, you've got to understand that the term death does not mean that the spirit was not breathing or not alive or it didn't exist. It was there, but it was separated from God. The term alive would mean that there was a communion with God that that sin was not separating from God. And Paul is saying this, that there was a period of time in his life that he was alive without the law at one time. Now, the only time that it makes any sense, the only way to understand this is would be uh, talking about when he was a child before he really received the knowledge of good and evil. And during that period of time, Paul is saying that he was alive unto God. So therefore, people have decided that that must mean that a child is not born with a dead spirit, that the death must enter when a person sins. And when that happens, then they die in the same sense as Adam and Eve died when they transgressed, and then they need to be reborn. Well, that totally goes contrary to what was uh, being said in the entire chapter of Romans chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 2 and, and on and on it goes. I believe that what this is talking about is that there was a period of time when the sin nature was not imputed or laid to Paul's account. Now, see, that's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 13. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. A child does not yet understand. I'm talking about a real young child doesn't understand the law of God. And until that law literally becomes alive unto him, sin is not imputed or held against him. In other words, God doesn't deal with him as having a sin nature, although it is present. That's what Romans chapter 5 is saying. It's present, but God doesn't deal with them that way. So you could say that a child is alive unto God, but that does not mean that the sin nature isn't present. It simply means that sin nature is not imputed unto them. It is not held against them. Now, to further verify that, in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, right when it says that I was alive without the law once, it says, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. It didn't say sin came. It didn't say that that's the time that sin originated. It said sin revived. Now, you can't revive something that wasn't already there. It was there. The sin nature was there, but it revived, and that's when spiritual death really began to operate in that person is when the law comes. All right, now what does it mean when the law comes? Where, where is that period of time that a child is free from the sin nature when it's not being imputed unto them? Uh, how do you discern when, how old a child is when they understand that? Well, I don't believe that you can put a time limit on it. There has been a phrase attached to it that I've heard all of my life when people talk about the age of accountability. And I've heard some people say that that age is 12 years old. Uh, I believe that it can vary greatly. I can say this, that in my children, my firstborn child, Joshua, he was brought up in the things of the Lord. We instilled the knowledge of God in him and taught him from a very young age. And because of it, he was uh, receptive to the things of God. Did you know most children today, the reason they are not able to understand things is because they are taught to be foolish. They're taught to be silly. They really are. Most people just think that a child can't understand things, so all they do is put them in front of TV and all this kind of stuff. When you take a child and you start teaching him the Word of God, we found out that at two and at three years old, our son Joshua was talking to us about things of the Lord that, I mean, most adults had never thought of. His mind was alert. It was awake unto God. He was sensitive because, see, he'd been taught that way, and he wasn't taught to be foolish. He was uh, what people would call precocious, precocious, or however you say that. In other words, he acted like he was older in years than what he really was. And what it was, it's just the fact that most children today act younger in years than what they really are. 
And so anyway, at three and a half years old, my son Joshua had a very strong knowledge of what was right and wrong. And he went beyond just the fact that mommy and daddy told him not to do it. He knew that it was a transgression against God. And as a result, at three and a half years old, Joshua was saved. He was born again, spoke in tongues, and he began to operate in the gifts of the Spirit and call out miracles. And he saw a man, uh, when he was just four years old, he saw a man that had a broken leg healed through a gift of the Spirit and some of those things. My second son was five years old when he really uh, got born again. He probably could have done it at four or something, but it was five when he really made a commitment to the Lord and got born again. So see, even in two children that basically we taught exactly the same, there was a variation there, and they received at a very young age. But you could take another child that had not really been taught the things of God and hadn't been taught the principles of God, had grown up in a very carnal or ungodly situation, and I believe that it could go on up to 12 years old before they really become accountable. Now, what I mean by accountable is, you may teach a child and say, don't touch that glass thing there on the coffee table, and if you do, you're going to get a spanking. And so that child may know, I mean, they may have a very good understanding that this is wrong to touch that thing on that coffee table. Now, that is a knowledge, but that's not the knowledge that I'm talking about because have they been able to look past that and see that the reason they aren't supposed to touch that is because God commanded us to obey our father and mother. Is a child able to look beyond the immediate punishment and say, if I do that, I'm going to get a spanking? And are they able to look beyond that and say, look, the reason this is wrong is not just because my parents told me it was wrong, it's because God told me to obey my parents. Or is a child able to look beyond their actions and say, I know that if I lie, it's a transgression against God. God commanded me not to lie. And therefore, that's the reason it's wrong, not just because their parents have told them. Their parents have told them it's wrong to lie because God said it was wrong. You see, a child has to be able to look beyond the fact that, well, this is right or this is wrong because mommy or daddy told me so. And they have to know that this is a transgression against God. It has to be a deliberate transgression against God. Now, when a child reaches that age, and again, that can fluctuate very greatly. I don't know when it is. I can say by experience that at three and a half years old, my son Joshua really understood that uh, to lead up to his salvation. Uh, when he was three and a half, we, we tell a Bible story every night before our children go to bed. And we were telling stories, and this time we just happened to be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And I was talking about how that they nailed him to the cross and how they put the crown of thorns on his head, and, and I was depicting how the people crucified him. And we had always spoken so favorably of Jesus. Joshua has loved Jesus since he was old enough to say anything. Matter of fact, the very first word he ever said at about nine months old was Jesus. He has loved Jesus. He's always heard good about Jesus. And... When we were talking about how Jesus was crucified, he just couldn't understand why anybody would crucify him. And so I began to explain that Jesus allowed people to nail him to that cross because of our sins. So he asked what sin was, and I started explaining that sin is disobedience. And I explained that when he disobeys mommy and daddy, that it's not just us. It's not just the fact that we told him. It's the fact that God said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, in Ephesians 6.1. And I began to just explain things that were sin to him. I began to explain what sin was and how that sin is what made Jesus die. Sin is what crucified him and that it was his sin that Jesus died for Joshua. And Joshua, while I was talking to him, he just began to cry and I mean tears streamed down his face. He, he actually understood and it was kind of surprising to us. The next morning we, when we got up at breakfast, I mean, it was over 12 hours later, and when we got up at breakfast, we were eating breakfast, and we looked over, and Joshua was crying, and we looked at him, and he says, I just, I just don't understand why they crucified him, and he was still touched by that. He was still thinking about it. God really touched him, so we went through it and explained it again, and so for the next couple of weeks, we just really dealt with him, and we answered his questions, and you see, he was receptive. God was speaking to him, and he had a knowledge that it wasn't just disobeying mommy and daddy, that through disobeying what we said... He was literally disobeying what God had commanded him to do. And we told him that out of the scriptures. And so Joshua received a knowledge of good and evil at that young age. And, I, and it was just a matter of a couple of weeks later until he was born again. And that's a very miraculous thing where God appeared to him right after one of our uh, bedtime Bible stories. And uh, Joshua was born again and spoke in tongues and was, uh, I mean, just transformed through that. 
And so that came at a very young age. It won't be that way with everybody. And uh, like I said, my second child was even different. And a child that has not been taught the Word of God since they were little tiny, I believe, will not be quite as receptive to that. And a child there, I've seen some children that were 8, 9, and 10 years old that had never had a serious thought or at least why it didn't look like they'd ever had a serious thought. They'd never really sat down long enough to see through anything. I, they may have never thought about that they were deliberately transgressing the law of God. And they may have just, you know, always thought, well, this is what mommy or this is what daddy said to do, but they may have not really gone deeper than that. But there does come a point in time in every person's life when that knowledge does come, and when it does, then according to Romans 7, 9, sin revives. That sin nature all of a sudden begins to work death in them. It begins to work separation from God. When they deliberately transgress and they understand they're transgressing the law of God, then if they were to die from that point on, there would be no uh, entrance into heaven without the born-again experience. They would have to be born again. If they weren't born again, then they would not be accepted into the presence of God because they would have a spirit that was separated from God, and it has to be atoned for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that time, until that time comes, I believe that a child is not held accountable for that sin nature. Now, it's there, but God does not impute the law I mean, impute sin where there is no law. Now, a scripture that would go along with this is Second Samuel chapter 12, and in verse 23, this is where David is talking about his child that died, uh, that was born in sin. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband, and David was speaking to his servants. His servants saw him mourning and fasting the whole time that the child was sick, and as soon as David found out that the child was dead, he washed himself and began to eat. And they said, you know, we don't understand. Why did you mourn while he's alive? And now that he's dead, you aren't mourning anymore. And David said unto them in verse 23, 2 Samuel 12:23, But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, he was talking about his child, and David said he would go to him. Now, that could be taken as David saying that he is going uh, to die just like he did, but I believe specifically what that's talking about. Again, I say that no human spirit ever ceases to exist. That child went somewhere. That spirit went somewhere, and that is verified many times over. That's a totally different teaching, but you do not cease to exist. That child is alive, and it's just simply alive outside of a physical body. So that child went somewhere, and David said he was going to go to the same place. Well, now, David was a mighty man of God. David was a man after God's own heart, and there's many things spoken in the Word of God, and it is just inconsistent with the Word to believe that David uh, is suffering separation from God. Now, David is in union with God, so that means that that child had to be with God. It, it was not in hell. It was in the Sheol part. It was in Abraham's bosom part and under the, under the Old Covenant. Now Jesus led that part free, and uh, it, the, those saints are now in the presence of God. So that child is in the presence of God. David is in the presence of God. And so, therefore, I believe that any child that was to die before that age of accountability, and again, that can fluctuate. I, don't, I can't say what that is, but before that time, a child would not have its sin imputed unto it. But yet the sin nature would be there. And so this is the harmony between these two opposite views. Yes, it's true that a child, before they really become accountable for their sins, can be very receptive to God. God can speak to them. They can love God. God can tell them things. They can operate in the Word of God and in the will of God much stronger many times than adults can. And so people observe that and say, boy, they just couldn't have a spirit that is separated from God. Well, their spirit is, it does have a sin nature in it, but that sin nature is not being imputed to it. It's not being held against that child. God is dealing with them. He's overlooking that sin until the law comes. But when that comes, sin revives, and then that person dies, and they must have the born-again experience. Now, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'd like to deal with verse 14. Now, this is another passage of Scripture that I've had some people ask me about. Uh, one of the things I've heard people say is that there is what ha I've heard called the law of Genesis, and that is that every, everything produces after its own kind. Now, you can go back to the, law, uh, to the book of Genesis, and you can see this. God commanded the animals 
to reproduce after their own kind, the trees to reproduce after their own kind, and on and on it goes. In other words, an apple tree always has other apple trees. That's what the seed contains. A cow always has a calf. It doesn't have a horse. That's the way that God established it. There is a law that things produce after their own kind. And so many people have established that, and I've heard them give it the law, the terminology, the law of Genesis, where everything reproduces after its own kind. And so if you carry that thinking on through, what would happen to a couple of born-again people who their nature had been changed, and they had a born-again spirit within them? And when they came together physically and had a child, if you followed that reasoning totally through, it would stand to reason that the child would be born with a born-again spirit. Now, I've had people ask me that kind of question. I can't truthfully answer that in a total manner. Because, logically speaking, that would, that would seem to be so. But did you know that not everything in God's Word uh, goes along with what we consider logic? Now, there are laws and a system of order in God's Word, but it doesn't always confine, conform to the way that we think. And again, I go back to the Scripture. Paul, you see, in Romans chapter 5, he didn't take this into account. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, he was talking about the sin nature and that through Adam we all became sinners. And if there was such a thing as born-again people begetting a born-again child, uh, uh, Paul never took that into account there in Romans chapter 5. There's no record of it. There's no record of anybody ever ministering to somebody and finding that they were born again, you know, since uh, birth. There, there is no such record as something like that. And so I simply can't see that by example. Also, I am totally uh, convinced that a child cannot be saved on the faith of their parents. It's an individual thing. You cannot cause your child to be saved. Now, you can sanctify them. That's what this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is talking about. But that child has a free will. Now, you could take much teaching, which I haven't got time to do, but you could just study on the will of, of man in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, and many, many other scriptures. And you can see that, that the will of man is something that God holds sacred. God won't violate it. And I believe that if God's not going to force you to do something, then I don't believe that your parents can force you to do it, or you parents can't force your children to do it. No, I believe that a will is something that is very sacred in the eyes of God. There is nobody that can make you get saved. You can go to hell if you want to. You have that right, and you have that choice. That's what Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says. God said, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both you and your seed after you may live. He said he gave us the choice, and I don't believe that you can make that choice for somebody else. I don't believe that a child can be saved on your faith. A child is born with a sin nature. Now, I can't totally uh, explain that logical thinking that we were talking about, but again, I'm saying that there is no scriptural proof for that kind of logical thinking. That needs to be verified and borne out by the Word of God. And I believe that the Scripture teaches just the opposite, that we are born with a sin nature and that we uh, need salvation. Look at it this way. If a child was born with a born-again spirit, and then that child uh, was to slip away from that, they would be in the position that Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that it would be impossible for them to ever get saved again. And yet a lot of those people that I've seen that ask me those kind of questions about is our child born with a born-again spirit, their children came to a place where they acknowledged the Lord, where they accepted the Lord, where they made Jesus their Savior. Now, if they were already born again, see, you can't do that. You can't get born again again. They would have to either be born again from the womb, or if they got born again, that would mean that they lost that salvation or they lost that relationship, that spirit died somewhere. And according to Hebrews chapter 6, that would forbid them to ever be born again. So anyway, I'm just simply bringing that up to say that I don't think that that is a valid statement at all. It just doesn't conform to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now, this verse talks about that through the faith of the believing parent, you can make your children holy, and otherwise they would be unclean. Now, somebody, see, this, the reason I brought this up is because this tends to look like that uh, you can sanctify your children, and, and some people might interpret this to say that they could have a spirit that would uh, not be a, have a sin nature in it. 
through your prayers. I don't believe that that's what it's talking about. The word sanctify does not mean justify. There's a difference. It does not mean forgive. The word sanctify literally means to set apart. And I believe what it's talking about is this is a reinforcement that a child is born into the world with that sin nature. In that sense, they would be unclean. But you do not have to allow that, that uncleanness to dominate them. You can, through your faith, sanctify them. The word sanctify means to set them apart. You can separate them from the evil that Satan would like to produce in their life. You can sanctify them from that lust and that desire that they have from the time that they're born to go astray, uh, astray from God. You can sanctify them and make them holy. And the word holy here does not mean saved. It doesn't mean born again. It just simply means set apart from the things that, dev that the devil would like to do. Through your faith, you can release your faith in the anointing of God towards that child, and you can keep that sin nature from dominating them. And you can begin to start releasing the life of God, and you can see a child, even though they have a sin nature, you can see them grow up in a godly manner. You can see them receptive to God. You can see them trained in the way that they should go and receptive so that when the law comes and they receive the knowledge of sin, they will know exactly what to do with it. The very first time they become knowledgeable of that sin, they'll repent and be born again. And you can stand and affirmatively say, I know my child's going to be born again because I have trained him in the way he should go. And as soon as that knowledge comes, I know he's going to make the right choice because I've trained him in the right way. Now, you can do that. And I believe that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is talking about. In my life, I can just share this as a personal testimony, that I was brought up in a home that was very uh, strict. We were, taught the, um, we were taught the Word of God. We were taught not to sin. We were taught uh, the right things to do. Now, we didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There was a lot of wrong things. But basically, as far as uh, being separate from going out and living in sin, to a large degree, uh, that was enforced in our home. By the grace of God, and I don't say this in any way to boast because, you know, who wants to be the best sinner that ever got sent to hell? There is no virtue in being the greatest sinner that ever was. I was still a sinner like anybody else. But to the best of my ability, I, I have never said a cuss word in all my life. I've never taken a drink and I've never smoked a cigarette. I live free from a lot of those kind of things. But when I was eight years old, I remember being uh, convicted of sin. Now, I had done things wrong. I had disobeyed my parents many times before. I'd snuck around and done things behind their back. I'd done things that I knew was wrong. But my thinking before that time was that, you know, I hope they don't catch me. And that's basically what I was thinking about. I thought if my parents didn't catch me, then I was free. You know, that there was no effect, that there was nothing wrong with anything. It was just only if my parents caught me. Now, that's basically the concept that I had. But I remember at eight years old that I committed a sin, and this time I knew my parents wouldn't be pleased, but this time there was a difference. I knew that I knew that I knew that I had sinned against God. I remember standing in the entrance to our garage in our house in Arlington, Texas, and I remember thinking, God, I know you saw me. I know that I have violated your word. And I felt conviction. I felt guilt, and I felt conviction over my sin. I still remember that. I mean, there was no escaping it. There was like daylight and dark between what I'd felt over the things I'd done before. And within just a week or two, after that experience... Uh, I went to a Sunday morning service, and of course we were raised in a Baptist church, and mostly what they preached was salvation, and the uh, pastor was preaching a hellfire and damnation sermon. And this time, I listened. Now, I'd heard those things every Sunday all of my life, I guess, but this time I listened because all of a sudden I knew I was a sinner. You see, I had the knowledge of sin. Sin had revived on the inside of me, and I knew that I needed a Savior. And so I didn't respond during that church service, but I went home that afternoon, and I asked my dad about that. And I said, do you mean that because I've sinned, I'll go to hell? And he began to explain things to me. And the fear of hell got my attention. But then my dad began to explain how much Jesus loved me. And it was the love of God. It was the goodness of God that brought me to salvation. And as an eight-year-old child, in my home, my dad and I knelt down in our uh, in the entrance to my bedroom, and we prayed, and he led me to the Lord, and I got truly born again. I mean, I was genuinely converted. Before that time, while I was talking to him, I was uh, crying, 
And I was crying not because of a fear of hell, but rather because I just... It was the first time that it was really revelation knowledge to me that I was responsible for Jesus dying, that my sins had contributed to his death. The reason he had to come into the world was because of my sin. I mean, it became very personal to me. And I was feeling grief. I was feeling sorrow. I was feeling repentance. I was feeling all of those kind of things. Uh, my brother and sister were both standing there watching me. And, of course, we were had a lot of problems like many brothers and sisters that weren't really brought up and disciplined in the Word the way we should. And we... Uh, you know, we uh, thought it was sissy to show weakness in front of the other one. We wouldn't cry. And yet here I, I was, and I knew that they were looking at me, and yet I was just openly crying. I mean, it was just like everybody else faded. It was God directly ministering to me. And I knelt down and prayed with my dad. And when I got through, I mean, peace and joy was there. All of the fruit of the Spirit was there. And I went up, and I mean, I was able to go out and just start uh, playing. Now, somebody might think, well, boy, it didn't look like you really got it. It seemed like it would have had more of an effect on you than for you to just get up and run off. Well, to me, see, that was the greatest proof that it worked because I was totally freed from the guilt, from the sorrow, from the oppression and love and joy and peace. And all of these things immediately manifested itself in my life. I was made fun of in the third grade for being a Christian. I mean, the very next week people could tell a difference in me. I changed. There was a drastic difference. Now, like I said, it wasn't that I was one of the worst kids around before that time, but yet there was still a noticeable difference. I became a new creature in Christ Jesus, and it took me quite a while to learn what I had, but praise God, there was a change that happened right then. And so I can say in my life that when I really became accountable, when, when the law really came to me was when I was eight years old, and it could fluctuate and vary with children, but... Uh, those are some examples, and I believe that whenever that real revelation knowledge from God comes, then is when the spiritual death is imputed unto us, and then is when the new birth is a necessity. Before that time, a child will not have that sin laid to their account. Now, this will have a lot of different applications, but one application is it will really help people that work with children. Because you don't need to view children as being just separated from God and dead and that they can't receive things from God because they are alive unto God. Even though that nature is there, even though there is the need for the born-again experience, they are alive unto God until that real knowledge of sin comes. And during that time, they can be taught tremendous things. They can be trained in the way that they should go so that when that time does come, they will make the right choice. We should never make the mistake of treating children as if they just can't receive anything from God. They are in probably one of the most uh, easy times to receive from God in their entire life until they get born again. And they are receptive to God. God speaks to them. They are free to understand. They can have the knowledge of God, and they can operate in the things of God. This will help you to understand maybe with your children and how to deal with your children. And also, I believe that one of the benefits of this, it'll help us to understand where we were. And it'll help us to understand our need of salvation. And it'll help us to understand exactly how much Jesus had to come. We had to receive a new spirit on the inside of us. So there are many, many different applications of this teaching. And I believe that it'll benefit you. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.